so if you've followed the podcast's Instagram, the gram, you know, as they call it, as the cool kids call it these days, you'll know that we've got an addition to the family here. His name is Odin Pawfather. He's 11 weeks old. He's a Maine Coon kitten, just so that we're all clear about what we're talking about. He's named after the Norris God or the Sir Anthony Hopkins character from Thor. Your choice. I know what the real answer is, but I'm not telling. He is wonderful. He will be in the background of all of the shows, probably with little coos and chirps. So if you hear those, it's just Odin. He's saying hello, and he wants to tell everybody that he absolutely loves crit racing. The thing is, is that I've come to watch how he interacts with the other members of the Pride, the other cats that are in the house. We've had him sequestered away from all of them. He's starting to begin to explore, begin to meet them. And he's like a tiny little three-pound sponge. He's going to be a massive 20-pound cat. I have no doubt in my mind. We've seen his paws. We've seen his ears. They're going to be huge in connection with a huge body. But he's like a little sponge. He is learning everything that he can from the other cats. He's watching them. He's mimicking their behavior. He understands that they meow. That means food. They do this. That means that they go there. And he's starting to do it himself. He's 11 weeks old. He's been here for a week, but he's learning to adjust by example from those who are around him, from his peers. And just so that everybody knows, the other ones are Vesper Lind. Yes, that's Vesper spelled P-U-R-R. We are super clever here. You've got Fausto Copi, aptly named after the bike racer. Of course, he came into our lives right after we went on our first trip to Italy. He makes perfect sense. He's beautiful and gorgeous and wonderful. And then we've got Patton, who is our munchkin cat. General Patton, that is. He has a rank. He earned that rank, clearly. I have, as my hero, General Patton, for all of his faults, for all of his accomplishments, for all the good and bad that he did in his life, he's always been somebody that I've admired and read a lot about, and we named our cat Patton after him, mostly because my wife wanted to throw me a bone in that she announced on our way to get him that we were getting him. There was no discussion. There was no, oh, by the way, we're getting Patton. So I was allowed to name him. But he's a munchkin, which means he looks like a corgi, except he's a cat and he's super food motivated. So just imagine a fat, food motivated corgi who's also a cat. The reason that I bring this all up in conjunction with this episode is because we're talking with Jed Schneider of Jittery Joes, or Judge Schneider of any myriad teams, Judge Schneider, the former U.S. national champion. We're talking with my friend, Judge Schneider, about his career in bike racing, and more importantly about this concept of what you pay forward in time. We all are the product of the people that have come before us. Formal or informal learning processes or mentoring we are only where we are in this sport at the elite level, at the master's level, at the junior's level, at whatever level it is, because we've learned from people who've come before us. And that always hasn't taken the form of classroom instruction or taken the form of anything that actually was structured. In Jed's case, he was the initial guy who taught me how to bike race. He was the initial person who showed me into the sport. And I met others because of him. And without Jed's involvement in my cycling life in 2000, I probably wouldn't still be in the sport. And I want to say thank you to him. But more importantly than that, I want you to be able to hear what he has to say about becoming a member of the sport, leaving the sport, coming back to the sport, and what he hopes to provide to all of us moving forward as one of the elder leaders of our community. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. 
when we get into this episode here with Jed, you're going to learn real quickly that this show is brought to you by our friends and coaches at Source Endurance. Source Endurance is a coaching company that I happen to be a part of, as in I am a client with Zach Allison. Jed is a client with Adam Mills. Alan Schroeder, who you've heard before, he is a client as well. There's a lot of people who've been on this show who are clients of coaches at Source Endurance. They have what you need in order to take your cycling life, your sport athlete life to the next level. Whether you're an elite bike racer, you're a master's bike racer, you're somebody who's just starting out, who wants to get better performing on any number of sports, you know, Source Endurance has something for you. So head on over to source.e.net, check out their full lineup of services that they offer from coaching to nutrition to, you know, just about everything that goes with being an endurance athlete. For our community here on Criterium Nation, they have a promo code which will help save you $50 off your sign up when you use Criterium Nation. All one word, $50 off. This show, as we all know, is part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is where you'll find everything from the slow ride to cyclocross radio to nowhere fast to the grodio. All of us are kicking up some great content as the weather in the Northern Hemisphere gets warmer. We've got more for you. And the boys at the Slow Ride Podcast are churning out some incredible content. Head on over there. Head on over to see what Bill did with his work on Matthew Vanderpool and great moments in his career on the YouTube channel. We've got a bunch of great stuff. Please consider becoming a member of the network. Help support this content creator-owned endeavor so that we can bring you more, more great content, more podcasts, more instruction, more humor, more entertainment, more of everything that you need in order to make bike racing just a bigger part of your life. So we're talking with Jed, we're talking about how we pay it forward, about what we leave for those who come next in our lives. So without further ado, let's get to this interview with Jed Schneider. My name is Jed Schneider. Uh, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or just outside of it. Uh, I've traveled and moved around a lot. I spent some time in Kansas with you, Rob, in college, and now we live in Portland, Oregon. For a lot of people, the name Jed Schneider is not one that's household at the moment in the world of American crit racing or American bike racing. You've you've been away from the top end of the peloton for a hot second, but the fun thing about doing these things on zoom is that we could all, you know, like snoop a little bit in everybody's house and you've got the flex right behind you, you know, national champion. I think it was 2000, the jittery Joes raced with them. You did some time in Belgium doing the Kermis circuit. So give us the Jed Schneider highlights. Cause nobody forgets about Jed. <laughs> it would be okay to be forgotten. It's not that big a deal. That was 20 years ago. I did, I did have some good rides. Um, I was to a degree at the right place at the right time. Uh, growing up mountain biking, uh, I raced on the RockShox Devo program, which was kind of de facto U.S. national team for mountain biking. I raced two years of World Cups at the pro level right out of my junior um, experience. And then the U23 thing was... Uh, the Espoir category was um, invented, so to speak. Uh, I qualified for one year of that. So I raced uh, mountain bikes that year. I went to Worlds in 1998 in Beaumont uh, for mountain biking for cross country. Uh, after that, I sort of uh, started to switch to the road um, and cycle cross. And yeah, so then in 2001 and 2002, I think it was, um, I won the Collegiate National Championships uh, for cyclocross, I was also three years in a row second at Mount Michael Nationals, and I was second at the Road Nationals as well in the collegiate. So definitely an all-rounder. Yeah, and then I went to Belgium for a couple of years. I came very, very close to scoring some World Cup points twice. I did about 40 engagements for the U.S. national team 
Um, I did another like 30 or 40 inner clubs and a lot of kermesses. I came home and I raced one year on a US pro, on a pro US squad, Jittery Joe's. Um, at the same time, I sort of uh, managed the farm team for them, which was uh, the AG Edwards, Lexus, Nally team, which out of that came the first couple of years, John Murphy, US pro criterion national champion uh, rode for us. Uh, Phil Guyman rode for us. Uh, David Gutton plan rode for me. The thing now is, is that you and I share some certain physiological facts. For example, when I grow my beard out, it comes in gray. You have a little bit of a beard going on right now and it has come out gray. You're a 43 year old cat one. I'm a 42 year old cat two. We've both continued to age despite our fervent desire to stop that. And I want to talk today about time, not time in the sense of time management or time in the sense of how fast your 40K time is, but time in the sense of that rare commodity that we have, the amount of hours, minutes, sunrises in our lives, because it starts to become apparent to you as you get older that that commodity is the most or one of the most valuable ones that you have. Let's start with the walking away or the backing away part of your career before we start talking about you getting back into the sport, which is where ostensibly you are now, trying to reimagine yourself, re-engage yourself, get back to being a full rounded athlete like you, you were in your 20s. What was it that told you that the Jittery Joe's experience or the U.S. Pro Circuit experience or the Kermess experience that that had run its course for you and that it was time to not do that anymore? I think that from some people, stopping isn't an option, right? And I think for other people, they stop before they get the opportunity to, to want to stop. You know, I look back on when I left and to, to a degree was at the apex of when things were actually getting better again in terms of fairness in the sport. I didn't know that at the time, of course. You couldn't really see it. I think I was just done trying. I was done being 17th at every stage race, right? I was done being just not good enough. And, you know, for some of us in that generation, you know, the the problem with doping, the problem with doping is that for every person who dopes and takes a spot on a team, there's someone who would have had that spot if the other person was clean to, or potentially, right? To a degree in that generation of the sport, it was just those few spots were not really in my reach. I look back on it now and I just wish like this whole gravel thing would have been a thing at that time for me because, you know, I'm always, I'm someone who is kind of like a, a, a multidiscipline athlete that I can get on a cross bike or a road bike or a, or a mountain bike and actually perform at very much a top level. And so like that kind of, you know, mixed surface thing would have been really appealing to me at that time, but there was just no, there was no you know, community around that. There was no race circuit around it. The, the weird thing about our sport, I love how I start like every sentence with a weird thing about our sport, but it's true is that we're judged by wins and losses. And so our attitude as athletes become about wins and losses. It isn't something that we remember all the time, that the experience is the thing that we remember. I can't tell you the number of races I've won or lost as an athlete. I can tell you about certain experiences that I had, like the time that I got second place at nationals, because I remember how terrible I felt in the process of doing it. But it was an experience. Has this the sport, has the experience of the sport ever soured on you much more than the results just not being there? No, I, I love riding the bike. I love racing. I love the feeling that you have 
when you have legs, right? Like when you can just tear a climb or roll a hard section. I just I, I, last year, a buddy of mine, Ish, and I rode this like 120 mile ride on the solstice. On the way back, you know, you kind of we did about there's about like an eight mile gravel climb, and we did it on road bikes. But on the way back, there was this really cool section that was sort of like cross tailwind downhill for a long time and kind of rolling. And you know, I wasn't really very fit last year. <laughs> it was like halfway through this ride, and I got on the front and I just like gave it full throttle on that section, you know, and just like. That feeling of being, you know, and we got to the done, you know, the end of this whole like probably like twenty miles or something, and it was like, that was legit, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I used to do that all day every day in Belgium, you know, like <laughs> now I can do it for twenty miles, I'm going to suffer on the way home, but like that feeling of just like rolling the pace, and you know, it's just it's just an amazing thing when you have when you have that rhythm, it's really fun. So I've never I've never lost that kind of part of the sport, I guess. In terms of souring, I don't know if this actually directly answers your question. The thing I was thinking about when you were talking was that to a degree, there's sort of this this whole social media um, and sort of influencer model of marketing sort of as a double-edged sword because um, it does offer athletes, I think, a way to not be judged on their last best performance. Uh, it does offer kind of more of a sustainable approach to the athlete brand and the the ability to sort of self-nurture a community. And that's a really interesting thing that certainly was not possible for me uh, or maybe just started to, you know, like I had a blog for a while, people read it a fair bit and I sort of stopped doing that. And, you know, looking back on it, I think that's, like that direction is definitely something that, yeah, like I said, it's available to riders today, athletes today. But it's also kind of, it makes it hard to know to a degree who's actually an influencer with being an influencer, <laughs> right? Well, I did a ride today and I, I don't know when this became a popular thing, but the finding the really cool wall to take your picture in front of, you know, this is the qu- the quintessential Instagram moment. And I was coming back through Middleburg, which is a, a horse town in Virginia. No, like literally it is a horse fox hunting town in Virginia. Look it up. They've got equestrian hall of fame or something to that effect right off of Main Street. And there were these two uh, probably 17, 18 year olds who were taking pictures in front of this stucco wall. And it was just like, you are doing that for the gram. That's it. You knew it. There is that somewhat authenticity, somewhat not authenticity that comes with with social media right now. But I don't know if you can hide those people who are genuinely having fun with their bike riding. They're genuinely having fun with their with their idea of being an athlete. Like the one who I constantly think of is Yolanda Neff, the mountain biker from Switzerland. She looks like she is almost always having fun. Like there is nothing about her that doesn't scream out, I'm having, I'm not having a good day. And we've got that in, you know, the criterium world. We've got that in the road racing world of people who are just like, you know, you look like you're having a good time. The reason I I bring this up is because bike racing and sport in general is fun all the way up until the moment in time that it's not fun. Rightfully, we have the, we have the capacity to walk away. We've got the capacity to do other things. You know, in the amateur context, uh, or at least even in the elite amateur context, which is where most criterium racing in the United States is these days, you can come and go. When you left, you never really left the sport. You just left the competition part. What kept you getting on a bike? I definitely took maybe three years like after I stopped riding and didn't ride a whole lot, you know, like part of that was like, Oh, I've got to have a career now. (laughs) I got to figure out something to do. And like I, for Jittery Joe's, I had run their web store for them and kind of like built it from the ground up. And I did all their wholesale for the coffee through the cycling industry and uh, ran that for a few years. And so that was kind of like the best thing I um, kind of had going. And so I went back to, 
to do some web development classes and kind of just went headlong into like software engineering and software development. And I just treated it exactly the way that I treated bike racing, which is like, you just get up and you work, you like, you know, when you ride your bike, you just get up, you ride your bike six hours a day. Um, you eat, you sleep, that's what you do. So I was like, oh, well, I guess that's how you get good at computer programming. So I just, you know, did the same routine and it worked out okay. Um, just kind of, you know, just grinding on that. And so that's pretty much what I did for like the first two years when I left. But, uh, you know, having kids to a degree made me want to kind of pursue and continue to be uh, an elite athlete of some level. It was really influential to me that my father was a good endurance athlete, that he prioritized that in his life. And I felt like I wanted to kind of give that back. But before we started uh, the, con- the the recording, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit about like what, what older athletes can provide um, to younger athletes in terms of mentorship and, and that sort of stuff. And I think if you look at Vanderpool right now, he's probably arguably you know, the best rider in the sport. But if I don't use his first name, you'd realize that uh, his father was a pretty substantial bike racer himself. And he comes from a lineage of bike racing. What's interesting to me about that is that actually uh, his father has some benefit from the genetics. But, you know, uh, the mitochondrial DNA comes from the mom, right? Powerhouse of the cell. So... Whatever Vanderpool has, you know, he got the core component of that endurance uh, genetics from his mom. So it's like, well, what's this connection there? And the connection is that generational knowledge is incredibly important in a sport like cycling. We are just now starting to get to the point where we have enough athletes who are multi-generational athletes, the Finneys, for example, that kind of knowledge and the way that you live, you run your life, you how you ride, what that means. I mean, that's it, it can't be understated, right? That's something that you don't just pick up. You know, what we have what we had in the States growing up when I was was basically bicycle companies telling you what was important and what fast people did. And so you bought things that fast people had. And you were supposed to be fast. And uh, I think that to a degree, the generational understanding of that kind of helps cut through some of that. Cut, cuts through the BS. Um, good equipment is important. Spending money on equipment is important. But only when it really matters. And I think so much of like what I participated in growing up, right? The, the story I love to tell is like, I bought the first generation rock shock because everybody that was good had rock shocks and you were supposed to have front suspension and the things were like six pounds and i was like 95 pounds dripping wet to put six and a half pounds on my bike to get some marginal amount of benefit i was riding way too heavy of a bike and you know like you know fast forward to like the era of tubeless and you know when i started experimenting with like lower pressure and like riding tires because I was so afraid to flat when I was young, right? You rode super hard pressure your tires, like letting the shock do the work. And the shock wasn't really very good and it was super heavy. And like I started learning, you know, how to run pressure lower, how to ride better at lower pressure uh, in terms of like not hitting stuff on roots and stuff and pinching. And I realized that like I would have been so much better off. Like if tubeless tires were a thing before suspension was a thing, the trajectory of my mountain bike career would have been, you know, completely different because uh, the benefit of having a light bike for a 95 pound rider versus a bike that's six pounds heavier is mind boggling. Right. But because I was being told that, right. I bought into that instead of like, you know, some crusty old Belgian guy that raced cross and he's like, Oh, well, you know, all you need to do is, like let the air out of your tires <laughs> go plenty faster. <laughs> Do you so I think what what people get here from this conversation more than anything is this understanding of the the difference between somebody friends. Let's put it like this. You've got a friend and you've had a friend for a year. Okay, you can talk a certain way to a friend that you've had for a year. 
you've got a friend who's a good friend, meaning you've known them for longer than a year. Now you can talk to them in a, a slightly different way. This conversation is based on two people who've known each other for half their lives. And I remember the first time you and I rode together. I was uh, 20 years old. It was 2000. I had just come down to Kansas uh, for my senior year. You were a grad student at the time. And you, you dragged me out to Topeka. Never been to Topeka before. At all. Uh, even though I had lived within 20 miles of it for four years. But we went riding and you were doing intervals that day. And I was trying to be, you know, Mr. Big on campus because I was a, you know, a, a swimmer and I had so many Palomars, et cetera, et cetera. But the first time up a slight hill, you dusted me completely. And I was like morbidly embarrassed. But there we were after the ride was over it was now dark. We were sitting on your patio or your back deck. You were renting an a, a apartment from Steve Tilford. And we must have sat there, God, for like an hour and a half. And you were answering every single question that I had. You were providing me with knowledge and information that I never could have imagined that I would have gotten. It was It was like a PhD level course in being an athlete. And I wonder if we are continuing to do that today in a way that benefits our community, are we continuing to pass it forward today in a non-structured fashion? Devo teams, juniors, things like that, that are, are structured are, are great and they should be fostered. But the thing was, is that this was a 26 year old talking to a 20 year old because it was unstructured, we could have very frank and open conversations about stupidity. And I remember you saying, of course I dropped you. If I couldn't drop you, I'd be, that would be a problem. You know, you're a cat five. I'm a cat one. Do you, do you see that continuing to happen today with people that you ride with in Portland or with the folks that you were riding with in Vegas? Is there still that you know, brother to brother, sister to sister sort of relationship where people are talking to each other openly. Yeah, I think it is. There is. I mean, a couple of comments ago, you know, we were talking about kind of like the Instagram thing. And and I, I think one way to put that, to kind of summarize that is that in today's cycling landscape, there's more than one way to be an influencer or to be someone with uh, a platform. And you can use that for good or you can use it for bad, of course. Uh, but let's assume we're using it for good. I think the the breadth of how you engage with that audience and how you're teaching is, um, is, is there's a much broader uh, ability for people to engage. Um, and, and it's even like choose what they want to be good at or what they want to celebrate or be, you know, to, what, what drives them to have fun. When you talk about uh, kind of junior development, for example, I, I don't think that the challenge for the United States is really at the point where there's a talented junior who needs support. We could do more of that. But generally speaking, I can't really think of a team that doesn't see a junior that's like raging all the masters and all the masters is like, man, we got to get that kid to nationals or whatever it is. I think it's earlier in the funnel where our problem exists. To a degree, if someone's going to be good at bike racing, they're going to exhibit it pretty early. They're going to have one of three things, a lot of courage, a lot of really good genes, or a lot of dedication. And if they have all three of those, they stand a good chance of being at the top of the sport. And frankly speaking, it's not hard to find that, right? I mean, you can go look at race results. And there's a junior that's seven minutes up on second place. Yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> She's pretty good. But earlier in the funnel, right, to your point of curating that love and enjoyment, freedom that cycling provides, I think that's harder. And I think that's really where we, where we, 
we're not doing a great job. If you want world champions, you need more kids on bikes, plain and simple. The funnel's too hard. And the, like, the more you put into the funnel, the more you're going to get out at the bottom. Because there's so many reasons people leave the sport, people choose not to compete. I tell people outside the sport, like, how hard is it to be a pro cyclist? I was like, well, think about if they only paid the top 500 lawyers in the world. Like, how competitive would it be if you had to be one of the best 500 lawyers in the world to make money being a lawyer? It takes the same amount of time, takes the same amount of effort to get to the point where you can race your bike pro as it does to get to law school. So if you're going to put like that much effort right into like something like that and your chance of like having a contract is that small, like how many people are going to see that all the way through? Not many. So like along the way, the only thing you can do is make sure that that funnel keeps filling and people are like entering the sport and loving it and enjoying it and doing it for the right reasons. What are the right reasons? I compete because I love to compete. You know, I, I go out there and I train because I love the feeling of training. And I've forgotten what the feeling of winning is like because I it, that passed me by so long ago, you know? It's just a reality that you lose way more often than you win in bike racing. But that feeling of training, of doing something, of having a structure to my life, to having a structure to my day, that's value to me. But is that value to a 13-year-old? Is that value to a 23-year-old? Is that value to a 63-year-old? Because this is a sport that we can do for a lifetime. I mean, that's the thing that I think that attracts me most to it and did early on was that, yeah, I've been doing it for 30 years. I can do it for another 30, assuming that I, my health remains or whatever. But that's very attractive to me. Uh, the freedom was really attractive. Mentally processing and thinking about things, right, was also something I think that was really important for me early on to sort of have that space to think about stuff, create ideas, uh, riding with people is like this amazing, like sharing, it can be an amazing sharing of ideas thing, you know, creating friendships. The right reasons are going to differ for all kinds of people, right? Some people are going to want to do the competition. Some people may never really want to compete or be really competitively adverse even, and still have a lot to pro provide the sport in terms of lessons and learning. I mean, as an example here in Portland, there's this group, they're kind of, they, they label themselves a broad spectrum <laughs> uh, cyclist group. It's, you know, you know, gravel riding, uh, road riding, lots of them into like bike packing and kind of like endurance stuff. Hardly any of them race. And there's like 1,300 people on this listserv and they're sharing, they're sharing reports and they're talking about adventure rides and they're supporting trail advocacy and they're creating routes for people to do. And they're, they're creating something that's almost even more important than a race in my mind. It is more important than a race because it's kind of something that's every day, right? I went and rode one of the routes today that's curated by that group. That's the culture aspect of it, right? So their, their, their reasons, their right reasons are going to be very different maybe than yours or mine, um, but they're equally valid, I think. And I think to a degree, it's those contributors that enable a kid who's 15, 17, for her to go out and have an experience that creates the spark. Let's dial in on you a little bit more because the cool thing about what you're not necessarily trying to do, but what I'm going to tell you you're trying to do is, is, is at you know, the age of 43, making a commitment to trying to find out how good you can be. Getting back in there, using tools like Zwift, taking advantage of the amount of time that somebody who's got a full-time job and two young children has. But one of the cool things that you get to do, and this goes back to this conversation about brother-to-brother -brother level help or sister-to-sister -sister level help, is you get to talk with Adam Mills. He's your coach. He's been your coach for 10 plus years. It's a really long time 
to have a consistent relationship. You knew Adam for 20 years because, you know, he was part of the group of us that kind of descended out of Steve Tilford's line in Topeka and his, you know, life and legacy touched so many of us. But having a brother-to-brother level communication with a coach is kind of a weird thing because we a lot of us don't think of a coach as somebody who's on our level that we can approach because they're the coach. They know everything. But you take a different tact with managing that relationship. Tell us about that tact and how you think it benefits you as compared to somebody who might take a more typical approach to coaching. I think we're um, taught early on that the coach tells you what to do, right? And you listen and you do it. And it's a very one directional conversation. I kind of take more of a tact of, um, especially recently, like I, you know, I think I fell into that with Adam, like Adam, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I kind of um, hit a point last year where I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue anymore. Not because I don't like Adam, not because I don't wholeheartedly believe that he can deliver the results that I want to do, but because I didn't know what I was doing anymore personally with that. Like it didn't seem like coaching fit into what I was trying to do anymore. And in 2015, 2016, Adam and I had a really good run of it and I worked really hard. We got some really good results. And then, you know, there was just a lot of like kind of upheaval in my life and uh, moving and a number of other things. And um, so I really haven't really taken it very seriously since like summer of 2016. So I sort of backed away from it for a few weeks and, and thought about it. And I kind of came back with more of a, I'm going to drive this relationship a little bit more. Like I'm going to be in the driver's seat. I want Adam to give me the information, uh, but I kind of manage it more like uh, Adam is the expert advice, but I'm the CEO. <laughs> right. And and I think that was a really healthy change. Um, and I also think like to a degree, and especially um, in a relationship like that with my coach, you know, because we're both close friends and we have a professional relationship, like sometimes those boundaries can get a little muddy. Sometimes it's hard to say the things that you want to say because um, you want to preserve that relationship. I feel like I was able to sort of rectify that for myself personally by thinking more about managing the relationship, managing the meeting, uh, taking the agenda. So I'm the one that creates the agenda for the meeting. I'm the one that checks in on the important points that we have. You know, we talked a little bit about this in, earlier, but off, off uh, recording, but you know, I have this idea from work we, we use called beach metrics, which is basically like, hey, what are the things that if I'm on the beach that I need to know about my product or my business or whatever it is to make sure that things are on track with no other information, right? Like what are those signals that I need? So we have three of those that are kind of custom specific for me. And we check in on those, right? Like that's kind of the, the head of the meeting. Like, where are we? Are we tracking? It's been a really healthy change for me personally, because I feel like I have a lot more agency and I'm using the coaching. We're, we're diving more into the numbers. We're kind of getting like by, by running the meeting in that way, and focusing on the things we want to accomplish and sort of like referring back to those in a more, you know, consistent manner. We're spending more time looking at the data. He's showing me things like the difference between like a Zwift ride and an outside ride, right? Like what are the differences? What do we need to work on? Where are the, where are the target areas that, that are, are important to sort of adapt so that I don't feel flat outside, right? Uh, as an example. So one thing that we've talked about a little bit kind of in our communications, you know, has been this idea of trying to think differently in solving a specific problem. So like, for example, what you're doing here with Adam is you're trying to solve the problem that everybody else has been trying to solve in the world, which is how do I get the most out of my coach or you could say that, how do I get the most out of my doctor? How do I get the most out of my lawyer at, or my teacher? And going and sitting there passively and allowing things to soak into you 
you don't feel that that's the appropriate way to do it. You want to be more in charge of your own person. And I think that's an incredible idea. And that's kind of why Zach and I do what we do when we talk about coaching. You know, I send him an email. It's got all these bullet points. We cover the bullet points. Then we gossip for a little while. Then we cover more bullet points and we gossip a little bit more. And after all of that's said and done, we've got, you know, we've had a good time and we also have a plan. The thing that I'd like to talk about here is this this confluence of convergent versus divergent thinking. So convergent, everybody's trying to get to the same goal. And the example that I think we used before is we all love the idea of five watts per kilo. If you can get to five watts per kilo, you all of the world's problems have suddenly been solved. But not all of us have the capacity, one, to get there, or two, even the necessity to be there at that very singular metric. There are a ton of ways to win a bike race, to perform better in a bike race. There are a ton of ways that you can improve a 20th place finish to a 10th place finish, and that could be a goal and accomplishment for you. Walk us through how you view this convergent versus divergent theory. Yeah, great opening to that. I mean, I think we were kind of joking off off the recording, right? Like you can have you can ride five watts per kilo or even six, but if you start two hundredth going up the Kemmelberg, it doesn't matter how hard you can ride, you're stuck, right? Like, and so you know, depending on the sport and depending on on your discipline, right? There are all these sort of micro advantages that can um, offset something like that. The one that comes to mind right now is actually in the coaching space. As an example, I get really into like, I kind of have this goal in the back of my head of like, I want to ride 40 hours a month, right? Like it's drilled into my head that like hours are the thing, right? Because like when I was before power meters, before the kind of data that we have, the only thing that could guarantee you results was hours, right? You're 10 pounds too heavy, ride 25 hours a week. You lose weight, you'll be faster. You're slow, ride 25 hours a week, you'll be faster. Like, you know, Time solves everything. And even now with my with my wife, my wife rides a ton and she turns a ton on Zwift. And her goal is 200 miles a week. It's very, very discreet. It's convergent. It's like, I just need to get to 200 miles, right? And for a lot of people, like that goal of just having the motivation to do that is enough, right? But when it comes to having something like a coach, the divergent thinking path is more along the lines of if you're in a race and you do more work than necessary, it's likely you're going to have a poor outcome. When you burn your matches, you don't have the matches when the race hits the fan, then you're not going to be in a position or have the ability to make the move. And so any work that results in you having a less than optimal performance in that race and being in a less than optimal position with a less than optimal ability to respond to the move is wasted work, right? I am nodding. Yes, I am nodding. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here currently soaking up all of Judge Schneider. In that race situation, wasted work, wasted effort is something you kind of want to avoid, right? Well, in effect, that's what you're paying for when you pay for a coach, right? Is you're paying for to, to reduce the amount of work you need to get, to need to do, to receive the benefit or the optimal like training response that you need to reach your goal, right? So if a coach plans you for six hours because they have an understanding that like that six hours is going to get a training response and you go out and you ride 12 anyway because it was fun or because like you feel like you needed to get 12 hours or because like you're under quota for the month by two hours or whatever it is, right? It's wasted effort. It's like attacking in a race with no purpose. The convergent thought is I need to do hours. I need to train really hard. I need to like, you know, whatever it is to get to the next level. The divergent thought is how can I do less and achieve more, right? Like what, what is the specific thing that I need to work on that's going to create this training stimulus, the training impulse that I need to get to the next level? It's a classic Scrooge McDuck, work harder, work smarter, 
not harder theory. And the fact that I brought up DuckTales should should nail this entire interview. My kids will be impressed. They like that. But, you know, how do you bring this all together? How do you bring this thinking about things differently, using the resources that you have and making improvements in whatever it is, the goal that it is that you have set. So, you know, neither you nor I are physically the most naturally talented people. We have certain advantages over other people that, you know, just come from genetics. But, you know, you're not six foot tall. I'm not 35 pounds of just pure unadulterated muscle with a lung and a heart attached to it. So we're making good with what we've got and we're trying to get better and we're trying to expand that longevity of a career. Where do we go? What are the things that we look at and say, hey, let's try this. Let's think about that. This is not rocket science, right? But kind of always trying to start with that beginner's mindset, like trying to step away and not to a degree. I think one of the things that holds us back sometimes is that we have like a very specific position on something because of our history in the sport or history doing it, right? It's easy to think like, oh, if I do the same thing over and over and I've done it forever, then it must be right, right? And um, so I think like really trying to approach things with a beginner's mindset and be willing to, to a degree, fail um, early. Uh, a good story I have about failing um, is sort of uh, recently was in the Zwift Racing League series, this season two. Um, there is a race. We did the Harrogate Circuit in Zwift, which is like the Yorkshire World Cup race. And in selection of that race for like the equipment that I was going to use, I decided to ride the lightest bike I could because I was concerned about having enough watts per kilo to get with the riders over the big hill. And I let my mind slip back into real world bike racing, which is this idea that like, you know, you know, if you're in a slight false flat downhill and a pack of 50 riders in a real road race, it really doesn't matter what bike you're on. You're getting sucked along, right? There's no penalty for having the lightest bike in the race or the least aero bike in the race in that kind of situation. But in Zwift, the algorithm doesn't really support uh, that same effect. You're like, it's the, the blob is a bit more of like a binary uh, blob. You're either in the pack or you're out of the pack. And once you get in the pack, then yes, you have the aerodynamic advantage of the blob. So you get some off the top for your for your aerodynamic coefficient, right? Make you a little bit more aero. But then like you're in competition with everybody else who also has aero bikes. And so in that situation, if you have a non-aero bike with a bunch of other aero bikes in the draft, you're working harder to stay in that blob than everybody else with a more aero bike. Because everybody gets the advantage for the draft no matter where they're at. And no one gets more of an advantage for the draft than anyone else, right? It's binary. You're in or you're out. I mean, I don't know that to be fact, but that's my perception of how it works. Because um, obviously no one knows the Swift algorithms, right? Um, but the point is that I rode my highest watts per kilo in that race of any of the races, and I finished the worst of any of those races. And the reason was because I allowed myself to get into the mindset of a real bike race versus a Zwift race and not switch my divergent thinking process there. Well, to a degree, it was a divergent th thinking process, right? I was like, I'm going to try this because everybody else says they're going to ride the Tron bike. I'm going to ride the light bike and kind of see what happens, right? But like my, my hypothesis was off because I presume something about the Zwift racing that is not does not hold true that does hold true in the in the real world so that's a yeah so so that's an example of like like okay beginner's mindset i made a mistake i tried something i made a mistake that's fine i learned from it i'm not going to make that mistake again <laughs> right 
that is that is the beauty of bike racing. In in a nutshell, you tried something, it didn't work, you realized what it was that it caused it to not work, and you will never do it again. But because it's bike racing, there is another time. Well, yeah. And I would say like you could do it again, right? You might get another, a different result, but like you may not do it exactly the same, right? You have to build on what you learn, right? And then you, you apply it maybe a little differently next time. Well, Jed, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been educational, outstanding, and a wonderful walk down memory lane for me. (laughs) Can't wait to get you back on again sometime soon. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to find out more about the network, more about all the shows, and more about how you can become a member. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Next week, we'll be talking with Tiffany Thomas, a transgender athlete from New York who races on a team out of Philadelphia. Obviously, Issues regarding transgender women, transgender athletes in general have been hugely discussed on Twitter, in the news, in the media, all over the place as it applies to our sport and as it applies to all other sports in the United States. So please come on back, listen to her story, listen to what she has to say about those issues as they directly confront her and other people in her community, in that transgender community. So please come back next week as we provide you more stories from our Criterium Nation. The Slow Ride Podcast. Three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast. The titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast. The arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast. When's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast. The experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast. The gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.